Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. Chief Palmer, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it too. So let's let's start with how you found out about this budget cut. How was this communicated to you? You you were blindsided on this, right? I was blindsided. I found out via an email from the city manager that came across my desk uh, the Wednesday afternoon. Um, you know, I'm going through my business normally as chief of the city, and all of a sudden this email pops up telling me there's going to be a, a budget cut of one percent, and then also another motion that was apparently passed by council to do with collective bargaining and neither of which I had been involved in any of those discussions on that motion and didn't have an opportunity to speak directly with council myself. Okay, a three and a half million dollar budget cut and it's communicated to you after the fact, right? This is after they had voted on it. That's right. Right, right. So you did, did you have any opportunity for input at all on that? Yeah, so some of the history on that. Back in April, the City Council did send a letter to the Vancouver Police Board, who was the employer and the governing body of the Vancouver Police, asking them about COVID-19 and, you know, potential budget implications, what we were able to do. And the Vancouver Police uh, Board sent back a very thoughtful letter, a five-page letter, which I believe has been released publicly now, outlining all the different circumstances and challenges that the police department is facing. And that was sent back at the end of April. And then we never heard from them again. And then next thing we know, there's this closed in camera meeting behind closed doors uh, away from the eyes of the public, the police department or the police board. And we find out that these cuts have been imposed without any form of debate or knowing any of the discussions or how people voted. What do you think about this being done in secret? I mean, when you're voting to cut the police budget, I think that should be done in public and the public deserves to know how these councillors voted. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a two-part answer. So with regard to the second part, which would be clause B in the motion that had to do with collective bargaining, you know, absolutely there are provisions for city council or really any board or um, council type structure to talk about things of, um, you know, private HR matters, collective bargaining, those sorts of things should be held in camera and nobody would have any issue with that. The part that I have an issue with is the A clause of the motion, which is a general reduction in police budget and police service to the city of Vancouver and to Vancouverites. Those things, I mean, I've been around over 30 years um, at the VPD, and I'll tell you, I've never seen before where it actually gets voted on and approved behind closed doors when we're talking about reducing police numbers and uh, public safety in the city. That should be something like we do in the normal budget process that's debated openly with council, and you've got myself and other Uh, people from the city there that can talk about their individual departments. I agree with you. Cutting a police budget, especially during a pandemic, should be done in public. The public deserves accountability on that. Let me play a clip here for you, Chief Palmer, of Mayor Kennedy Stewart on speaking this morning with Simi Sarah. And I was kind of stunned by this, where the mayor himself says he didn't know that this vote was going to be called on cutting the police budget. Here's the mayor. I actually, uh, going into the uh the meeting where this decision was made, I didn't actually know that that would be a part of what was discussed. So I was also uh, blindsided. But Mayor Stewart, how is that possible? You're the mayor. Well, uh, again, I can't talk about what happens in camera. What do you think of that? 
Well, I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> it's fascinating because it goes to show you, I mean, nobody really knows what what went on behind closed doors there. And when we're talking about, you know, city budgets and public accountability, when we live in a Western democracy, I think things like that should be out in the open. So um, I think a lot of people were surprised. Well, you think, even the mayor says he didn't know. I mean, isn't he chair in the meeting? He's the mayor. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what went on in that meeting because none of us <laughs> were there, so... Oh, man, who's in charge here? I don't get that at all. Let me ask you about the impact of this cut. Now, you know, we're going through tough times. The city is losing millions of dollars. The mayor says that a lot of departments across the city have taken budget cuts. A $3.5 million budget cut sounds like a lot, but in in the bigger scheme of things, it's a 1% cut to your budget, right? Could could you not find 1% savings here? Right, so I'll give you some context on that. So, I, you know, as far as the other people that work for the city, in all the various departments, my heart does go out to them because I know they're going through tough times uh, themselves and their families. And this is a really unique situation we're in with this worldwide pandemic, which has you know, impacted Canada and our city um, particularly hard, like other places as well. But my job as the chief of the Vancouver Police Department and my responsibility is you know, to the people that work here, but also more broadly to the, uh, the people of Vancouver and for public safety, I have to just point out that Policing is a very core and essential service to this city, and there's certain things you need, like you know, water and sewer and garbage pickup, fire service, and police service is right near the top of the list. And there are many things in this city that you could say are essential. I think we're right at the top, and there's a lot of things that are non-essential, and that has been shown by you know certain areas of the city that basically were just able to shut down and continue on and their workload has basically gone down to zero or very minimal whereas our workload has continued and we've got people out there on the front lines who don't have the ability to stay at home they can't self-isolate they can't social distance they're out there dealing with people on the street having to break up fights go to domestic disputes um, deal with all kinds of disturbances and sometimes you know unfortunately go hands-on with people and arrest people so it is not a spectator sport at times you have to jump in and deal with things that are happening in the moment so we're in a very different situation than other city departments so i think that's one thing the other piece of it is that you know during this crisis our priority one and priority two calls which are our most serious calls have not gone down and we've seen some disturbing trends with you know major things going on in the city in the downtown east side oppenheimer park i mean all the you know loaded shotguns and weapons and eight-foot boa constrictors, and and all the things that you couldn't make this stuff up, you know, happening down in that area. We've got commercial break-and-enters on the rise. I mean, you go down to, it is starting to settle down now because we've put resources on it, but, you know, Robson Street and a lot of areas just boarded up. Arsons, we put out a media release on that yesterday. That has seen a significant spike. Knife point robberies of corner stores. And really disturbing things like uh, anti-Asian um, racism and hate crime on the increase, which is extremely disturbing for everybody in our society. And you've got the BIAs, you've got um, folks in Chinatown, everybody, you know, wanting more police. And there's all kinds of, you know, strife going on in the neighborhoods. And we need to be there. And the toll that it takes on frontline officers that are out there, you know, helping Vancouver through this to keep safety and security in the city and you know, they're dealing with people under very challenging circumstances, going home to their families. And I just think during a time of crisis, whether it's a pandemic or an earthquake or any kind of major incident, to me, it just seems counterintuitive that you would cut back uh, frontline first responders like police. Speaking of Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, what will be the impact of this, of this budget cut on police services in the city? Well, 
We're in a situation that is unique from other city departments as well, that over the last 15 years, we've gone through two major reviews. So uh, back around 2007-8, and then another one um, that ended at the end of 2017, going into 2018. So those reviews were done by outside criminologists who came in and looked at the Vancouver Police Department and went through this place with a fine-tooth comb, looking at all of our areas, our administrative side, our detectives, our frontline operations. And we are a very lean machine without, without a lot of fat here. And I can tell you, we have really leveraged um, civilianization so we don't have cops doing jobs that civilian professionals should be doing. We've leveraged technology, analytics, um, done some realignment in the police department. And we have a very, um, we're at a very mature level um, in our investigative capacity our response capacity, proactive programs that we have, and also our recruiting and our attrition. So we've got it nailed down to a pretty well-oiled machine. So if you're talking about, um, you know, millions of dollars coming out of our budget, that is going to mean impacts on staff. So I I just want to be clear, like, to my, you know, any of my officers or civilian members or their families that are listening, I just want them to know that um, I'm not planning on laying off anybody. So there's nobody in the department that's going to lose their jobs. And it's going to be clear on that. And to the best of my abilities, I'm going to do everything while I'm chief not to let our folks down because I have a duty to the people that work here and I have a duty to the citizens of Vancouver to ensure safety in this city. So the way that these impacts would impact us if they were implemented would be through recruiting. And where that causes us all kinds of issues is that we have um, you know, a very detailed recruiting plan. We've got roughly 50 people per year retire, police officers retire per year, Uh, from the VPD just through regular attrition. So that's about what we lose. Other than retirements, hardly anybody leaves the Vancouver Police Department. We have very good retention. Hardly anybody leaves for other uh, PDs. Uh, But we are a destination for other places. So we have people from um, suburban police departments, from the RCMP, from other major cities across Canada applying to VPD all the time. And if we're not able to continue recruiting either experienced officers or new recruits, we get put into a very tenuous situation because one thing that's unique about policing is that we can hire somebody that's a professional in another occupation like teachers, nurses, um, you know, somebody that may work at CBSA, somebody that's right. an accountant in the IT field or whatever. We get people like this all the time applying to become police officers. They come in with great skill sets and education. But unlike if you're a teacher in Surrey and you want to go be a teacher in Burnaby and you can start tomorrow, you come in as a teacher in Vancouver we can't use you for the better part of a year because you have to go to the police academy for nine months of training and then come out and there's mentoring right. and field training. So my, my point is that it really sets us back um, and will reduce resources on the front lines. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about ICBC now. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, fewer people on the roads. The accident rate is down. There had been a lot of anticipation that ICBC might be in a position to give a rebate to BC drivers if they're saving money on claims. They are saving a lot of money, millions of dollars in savings for ICBC with reduced accident claims on the road. But are you going to get a rebate? No. No, that was the answer yesterday from Attorney General David Eby and also from Nicholas Jimenez, the president of ICBC. No rebate for you, at least not yet. I bet you they're saving it up for next year when we get closer to an election. That's probably what's really going on. Listen, you should be getting a rebate here. Come on, ICBC saving millions of bucks here. Let's check in with the opposition critic for ICBC, Jazz Johal, Liberal MLA for Richmond, Queensboro. Jazz, thank you for coming on. Pleasure. Your, your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I was quite disappointed. Uh, you know, you've got uh, major uh, insurers around North America promising some sort of rate reduction of, you know, 10% to 25% throughout North America. And each uh, insurance company and each insurance uh, region is going to be a little different. But generally speaking, there has been some sort of rate reduction. And we're yeah. into almost day 50, I think it is 55 or something like that, of a state of emergency now. And all I've heard from Mr. Eby and ICBC is this slow walking of this rate reduction conversation. They've done nothing. Uh, you know, I was doing some back of the napkin math, Mike, uh, and I was going to the press release yesterday. Yeah. ICBC said there's been a 46% uh, less accident claims during this period of May, March 16th to May 2nd. Right. That comes out to about 7,200 less claims, right? Right. Now, if you compare that to last... 7,200 fewer claims over that seven week. Week, seven week, uh, per week. Per week. Per week, so okay. That comes, That's a lot. So that comes out, that, yeah, that comes up to 50,000 fewer claims between March 16th and May 2nd compared to the year before. Right. Now, ICBC said they saved $158 million because of that. Well, if you do the simple math, that comes out to about $3,100 per claim, according to them. Yet, oh. in the 2017 average for these claims was $40,000 per claim. So the numbers they say they're saving is, is not the right number. If you just base it on some basic back of the napkin math, they've got less claims. And if you're saying that every claim was only worth about $3,000, no one's going to buy that. You covered ICBC court cases. The average in 2017 for payout was $41,800 for yeah, property the, the, damage. The numbers don't add up. No, they, they, don't. they don't add up. They don't make sense. ICBC must be saving a hell of a lot more money than, than what they're claiming. Exactly. They got to be. They're slow walking this thing. They keep talking, oh, we're looking at it. We're going to investigate. The media has been pushing them on it. But they've got nothing in regards to specific numbers. And I'm just, I couldn't believe it. I was just doing the basic math yesterday. Going, yeah. This makes no sense. It was 41800 in average injury payouts. In 2017, according to the numbers ICBC just put out with Mr. Eby, the average actually is only 3135 So there's a $37,000 uh, discrepancy here. Yeah. So they're saving a ton more than what they're claiming they're saving. It would appear, that would appear to be the case. Now, I'll agree with you. That jumped out at me, too. The numbers don't make sense. So you're just wondering, you know, who's zooming who here on these numbers? I can't figure that out. The other thing, though, I mean, in ICBC's defense, I guess, they're saying that, look, a lot of people have canceled their insurance. A lot of them have, have downscaled their insurance. If they're, if they're working from home, they're not driving from work anymore. So they've adjusted their premiums. So they're losing money on premiums with, with cancellations, right? Does, does that make sense that on, on the one hand, they're, they're saving money from a reduced accident rate, but they're losing money because people are canceling their insurance? Look, I, I think British Columbians have canceled good for them. And they're, if they're able to, are downgrading uh, their coverage. But what it means is you've got to actually make the effort to go in, cancel, uh, and then, of course, now you've got to go in and, and, and get the insurance again if you're heading back to work. Uh, that's that extra bit of hassle you have to go through. And, you know, if it's a little tougher for you, a lot of people won't do it. And that's more money into ICBC's coffers. All I'm saying is you're a public insurer. And if there's ever a need for a public insurer to do what's right for the public, you would automatically tell every British Columbia that has an ICBC uh, insurance, we're going to reduce it by 10, 15% across the board. That's the simplest and easiest thing to do. And that's the right thing to do when you're dealing with a once in a century pandemic. What disappoints yeah. me is that in this particular case, 
when we look back is what did our government do? There's various programs the federal government's introduced, but when you look at our public insurer, we know what our public health care systems are doing for, for the citizens of British Columbia, doing a great job, a bang-up job. But what did ICBC do? Well, they canceled the cancellation fee of $30 and an $18 yeah. plating fee when you go back, 48 measly bucks, yeah. when they're just bringing in the dollars. And on top of that, they send out this press release, which I don't believe is true or accurate in regards to the money they're saving. Okay, what about the ICBC investment portfolio? Because a lot of insurance companies, when they've we've got money on hand, they've got capital reserves, they will invest that money into stock market or wherever. The stock market has taken a bath, as we know. So ICBC is saying we're losing money on our investment portfolio. But again, though, the numbers are fuzzy. They they won't say how much they've lost, but they they do say that there there's turmoil in their investment uh, holdings. Is, is that adequate? explanation or excuse hey, there's turmoil in my rsp holdings and your rsp holdings and your listeners rsp holdings the market did drop and has been slowly easing up some days are tougher than others for investors i get that and but i think over the long term whether it's a year from now 18 months from now two years from now that portfolio is going to come back in fact in many cases the stock market has already slowly eased up and re- after the initial shock of the pandemic what i find interesting is that no interesting is that no other major insurer in North America is claiming that losses from policy cancellations are exceeding savings from reduced claims. The investment yeah. portfolio itself generally pays for the administration, running of the administration in ICBC. You generally want to break even on the uh, accident claim, and that's the other side of ICBC. So this, the claim side pays for the administration of employees and all that sort of thing at the end of the day. There's no doubt there's been a drop. Okay. But I'm not saying those numbers are going to come back. They always do. If, uh, depending on how long you look at the market, but to say that the, the drop has been so significant, we just can't give the people give the people of British Columbia uh, a rebate is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, if okay. you're a 20 year old with a five thousand dollar a year insurance rate, a ten percent reduction is five hundred bucks. That buys a lot of textbooks come September. You know. Okay, I think there's some politics going on here because we're not into an election timetable here at the moment. There will be an election in British Columbia next year, and I got a feeling that. This is a government that wants to cut people a check on their ICBC rates right before an election. Do you think that's what's going on? Like they're holding back now because Uh they want to save it for next year? I wouldn't put it past them. I can see them wanting to do that. I can see them saying, you know what, Uh, we're going to save a little bit of money now. We can use it for other things later later on. I think that's exactly what's happening. The fact that Mr. Eby has been slow walking this, keeping his head down, and now that he's been browbeat to actually say something, they did. But when you look at the numbers, they don't make sense. So certainly they're 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 creaming all the money right now and using we're going to use it for a later date and that's unfortunate because look if you're a homeowner or if you're a small business owner right now you need the money right now in regards to meeting your mortgage requirements your rents that's the issue today for the average British Columbian and I tell you besides paying your mortgage and rent what's the other big expense expense for your uh, when it comes to what you have to deal with every month it's your ICBC insurance. And that's where we need to be up front and talking to British Columbians and getting that money to them right here, right now, okay. rather than slow walk on this thing and say, well, well, maybe next year, you know. Okay, what do you say to David Eby when he points the finger at you guys and says that what they're trying to do right now is to clean up the mess that the Liberals left for them? This famous dumpster fire over at ICBC, that's all the Liberals' fault. You guys used ICBC like a piggy bank. You took money out of there and put it into general revenue over a billion dollars. What do you say to that? What I would say to that, first of all, we said from day number one, 
we are not going to have the average person paying significantly higher ICBC rates. ICBC rates have gone up significantly more in the last four, three years under Mr. Eby than they have in 18 years under the BC Liberals. We've tried to keep those costs down. Now, at the end of the day, yes, we're, see, we're seeing more court cases. We're seeing higher claims rates, and those numbers do go up. And the insurance industry, broadly speaking, is going through significant changes, not just at the pandemic, but you see that with Stratus. It's the Stratus situation here in British Columbia as well. Yes, there are challenges, but at the end of the day, what are we there for? Making sure those rates don't go up significantly. Look, we had ICBC come to us and say, yeah. you got to raise the rates of young people. We said no. Three times they came to us and we said no. Mr. Eby couldn't do that, and that's why 18, well, 20-year-olds are now paying $5,000 a year. Well, we why never didn't, allowed that to happen. Why didn't you say no when it was time to use ICBC like an ATM machine when the Liberals were in power and you guys were, were stealing money out of there, like siphoning, like siphoning gas out of a gas tank? You took over a billion dollars of money out of ICBC and put it into the government. But the government is also for the people, uh, uh, Michael. At the end of the day, we had a balanced budget. We have taken dividends from ICBC because we're the main shareholders. The people of British Columbia are. The government's budget is Dividends? The is, that budget. What you, is that what you call and it? Then, dividends? But we've done that with BC Hydro as well. Look, yeah. ICBC <laughs> yeah. and the insurance industry, the insurance industry is going through challenges. I do not deny that at all. There's yeah. no doubt, there's no doubt there's going to be challenges moving forward. But if we're talking about the pandemic right now, if we're talking about helping British companies right now, you can do that by reducing the rates at ICBC for okay. the year for the people of British Columbia. Well, That's I'll, the issue at the moment. I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you on that last part. Let me ask you this: If the Liberals, we're going to get into another, we're going to get into an election next year, and it's going to be a barn burner. And I think that this issue of ICBC is going to be a critical issue in in an, in an election in British Columbia. What would the Liberals do to reform this auto insurance system? Would you guys allow privatization? Would you would you privatize ICBC? Would you allow, allow private sector competition? I think you take the politics out of it first and foremost. You get a panel of real experts who know the insurance industry and say, oh, come back to us and let's have a public conversation with whatever you come back with, with the people of British Columbia and say, look, do you want choice? And what does that choice look like? Does that include the private sector? With a public sector insurer, does that include greater private sector uh, involvement? How do you see ICBC over the next 50 years uh, if, it's, if you believe it should be there? And I think that's how we're going to be able to solve this. You've got to have an honest conversation with British Columbia. There are some who would support a public insurer, but it's got to be reformed. If you want a public insurer, there should be public benefit. But when a 20-year-old is paying $5,000 a year for insurance and going to the yeah. bank of mom and dad to pay that, something is wrong, okay, right? Okay, but so yeah. that's what I would do. But Jazz, is that all you got for me today? Like, we got to have an honest conversation about it. Like, what can you? Why can't you tell me what the Liberals would actually do? Like, we've been having a conversation about this for years. What mm -hmm. would the What would a Liberal government actually do? You know, don't tell me about an honest conversation about it. Tell me what you would do. Well, I think at this particular point, you have to look at the benefits of a public insurer and the benefits of private insurance, and then have that honest conversation. You can't come out and yeah. say that today, ideologically. I'm going to get rid of ICBC. That would be unfair, and that wouldn't be right, and that would be a lie for me to say, and I'm not going to do that. What I am saying is there are benefits of private insurance. There are benefits of public insurance. Can we have a hybrid, or do we want to lean more yeah. towards private, or do we want to lean more towards public? But if that's the case, how do you reform ICBC? Because I know one thing. I hear this every day 
that something has to change at ICPC. That I hear consistently from British Columbians. So I don't think it'd be honest of me to say, I'm going to get rid of ICBC. I don't think that's a fair comment on my part. It would be a lie because I don't think it's the right way. I think you've got to actually listen to people and say what yeah. system works best for them, for the auto plan dealers out there, and most importantly, for the people of British Columbia and what they're paying. I think that's the okay. honest answer, Michael. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. All right. Welcome back. Well, we got a long weekend coming up. Lots of people looking forward to that, especially since a lot of provincial parks are opening up again for day use. Let's take a quick look at the weather here coming up in Vancouver for the long weekend. Well, you got a little rain in the forecast here this weekend, but still, it's a long weekend coming up, and some parks are opened up. Let's find out what's open and what's not with my guest Sam Waddington. He's the owner of Mount Waddington Outdoors in Chilliwack, and he's an advocate for provincial parks and getting outside and enjoying our natural beauty here in B.C. Thanks a lot, Sam, for coming on again. Of course. Always my pleasure. Yeah, the last time I talked to you, you were saying, like, why are we shutting down these provincial parks? And I agreed with you. I, I don't think we should have shut down provincial parks, but it's nice to see some parks opening up. So what's open this weekend and what's still shut down? Yeah, so as we look across the province, um, it's definitely a bit of a mixed bag. I'd say my estimation is about 50% of parks are still closed. Um, and uh, and there's some notable ones uh, to think about as well. So um, when we look at what's closed, like in and around the Metro Vancouver area, I think some of the stuff that people should be aware of are things like uh, Garibaldi Provincial Park, uh, Joffrey Lakes, um, Porto Cove up the Sea to Sky, um, in the Okanagan, like Okanagan Lake Park, for instance, is closed. Um, we still have closures at like Horn Lake Caves Park on the island, Cypress Provincial Park in the North Shore is closed, um, Coquihalla Canyon. That kind of stuff is all closed out of hope and like where Othello Tunnels is. So those are some of the more popular parks, and that's why they're closed. Um, yeah. And uh, and they're just trying to keep crowds uh, down, and and, uh, and they don't have the staffing to be able to manage sort of what they expect as demand. So, so yeah, BC Parks is opening a handful, though. So uh, in, in kind of across the province, just kind of a highlight reel would be like Golden Ears Provincial Park is open. Uh, most of Kootenai Lake uh, Park is open. Um, Murin in, in Squamish as well as uh, um, uh, Squamish Chief for the Climbers uh, is open in, in Squamish as well. And then out towards Chilliwack, Cultus Lake, and, uh, and Chilliwack Lake, as well as the Coquihalla Summit. Some of those major recreation areas, including Manning Park, those are all opening back up um, as well. So there's definitely some options kind of in each of the regions uh, is what it looks like to me. Everyone in the province should be able to find something, but don't just j- drive out there because there's definitely some closures. Yeah, you should definitely check online with the government's website on this to find out which parks are open and which are which are closed before you before you go out there. And the government, of course, at the same time that they're opening up some of these provincial parks, Sam, for the weekend, they're also encouraging people don't be traveling to to distant communities. Stay close to home uh, as you get outside this weekend. So encouraging people to enjoy the provincial parks if they're open, but only visit the parks that are near where you live. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, that's probably just good logic as, uh, as driving on, um, on long weekends is a bit of a nightmare regardless, but, um, but yeah, so staying close to home. And I think there is an option for, for people close to home. And, and one of the things I always like to remind people is, um, provincial parks are awesome. They're one of our most beautiful assets, but they're not the only one. Um, you know, you can definitely get into crown land, uh, trails as well. And those, uh, those openings have kind of reflected, uh, similar timelines to BC parks. So, you're allowed to camp even in the backcountry in, uh, in Crown Land, um, and you can use the um, vast majority of the trails. 
um, rec sites for camping, all that kind of stuff, uh, similar to BC Parks. If you actually want to go camping, that's not going to be until June 1st. So most people who are looking for drive-to campsites anywhere in the province, none of those really official ones are going to be open until June 1st. Right. What about the Forest Service recreation sites? Are those open? Yeah, so some are um, and, uh, and some are not. Um, mostly the ones for day use are, are open um, as of yesterday. Um, but the vast majority of, uh, of any of like the rec sites that include camping, um, which about half of them do, those campsite pieces are still closed. Okay, but they're open this, for day use. Yeah. Speaking to Sam Waddington from Mount, Mount Waddington's Outdoors in Chilliwack. And so, Sam, the, the parks that are open, they're only open for day use, right? So there's no overnight camping in provincial parks yet. But the, the camping will be open, right? When, are, when, are we, uh, when will people be allowed to camp in provincial parks again? Yeah, so we're looking at uh, a June 1st um, opening for most of them. Um, yeah. Remember, again, it's not, it's not a blanket policy, so check your local parks, but um, you can do that through the BC Parks website. Um, but yeah, BC Parks is going to be back open for reservations um, as well um, on May 25th. So if you want to actually book a BC Parks campsite, May 25th at 7 oh. p.m., that's going to be the website crash date is what i'm going to call it um but uh but no i I know they're working hard to make sure it's going to be able to handle the capacity but that's the new booking date and if you did book before that you will be getting 100 percent refund um but yeah they're um uh they're opened up um yeah may 25th but you can't actually begin camping until june 1st and that's in recreation sites managed by the province as well as bc park sites managed by bc parks Okay, a lot of people excited about the idea of getting outside and going camping again with their families, and certainly that's something I would like to do with my, my family as well. Uh, I've often found in the past, Sam, that the online reservation system for these campsites can be kind of tricky. Sometimes you got to have a little inside knowledge about and know precisely when the site is open, uh, be ready to book the site right away, have the credit card in your hand and ready to go. So... I think we should circle that date on the calendar, right? May 25th at 7 p.m.? That's when you can reserve online again? Yeah, exactly. So you should probably circle more like May 24th to start your research and begin looking at what parks and a specific site, right? Because some of these uh, campsites are are massive. You know, we looked at some of the more popular sites, at least in the lower mainland region, Um, something like, let's say, Cultus Lake Provincial Park. I mean, there's hundreds of sites there, and if you are beginning your research the day that that uh, booking reservation system is open, um, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So we recommend people have what they what they want to get uh, uh, reserved, line it up, have everything input and ready before 7 p.m. You can hit pay at 7 p.m., and that's what you want. Um, otherwise, uh, you may not get your first choice of campsite. Um, and yeah, everyone's waited long enough. The province has been patient. Now it's time to go camping. So um, yeah, get the site that you want. Make sure you're ready. Yeah, there's some, that's some really good advice there for using that site. You gotta have a, you gotta be smart about how you use the, that online camping reservation system for sure, and, and make sure you've got, like you said, your research done and that you're ready to rock, and you got your credit card in your claw, and you're ready to go in front of your computer, and just do a little advance advanced planning to to get the campsite that you want how are they going to do that camping with the social distancing requirements in place for for COVID-19 are they going to be I know other provinces have done things where every other campsite is closed so you maintain you maintain some distance with other with other groups yeah I think there's going to be some of that for sure and and perhaps some of the sites where it's like you know group booking sites and stuff I don't think that'll come back online um, with yeah. the first opening, um, in most cases, they haven't specifically indicated that. But 
I would doubt that some of those big group sites and some of that stuff will be open. But, um, but yeah, like the, I think we're going to be in for a, a bit of a ride here. It's, it's, um, I know the province is doing their work to try to make it as seamless as possible, but, um, I think camping in general is a, uh, is a totally, um, it's a totally safe activity that you can manage, you know, any, any of the risks that, that, that are important to you and your family. Um, you know, you're outside, there's fresh air. Um, you're not in a confined space with anybody. Um, yeah, maybe you bring some hand sanitizer over to the water station when you fill up your bottles so that you're not, uh, touching the same handle everyone else is without a little bit of caution. But, um, but yeah, I think in, in, in many respects, uh, camping is one of the places where you can get a sense of normal back and, and, uh, yeah, sit around, uh, sit around the fire with your family and, and do yeah. your thing. For sure. I agree with you. I think it's good for your physical and your mental health. Get outside, go for a walk, go for a hike, and enjoy your, enjoy the outside and be with your family. That's going to help everyone's mental health, too. So it's it's good to see that these parks are, are, are opening up, for, for sure. Uh, for people who want to enjoy the parks this, this weekend, are, can you have a campfire? I don't think campfires are shut down, right? You can have a campfire, I think. Uh, it depends. Um, okay. So in most zones, actually, campfires are shut down. Oh. Um, and most of that was just to limit, you know, any extra risk profile and any extra response that might be needed by, um, you know, by provincial ministries, forest fire response teams, that kind of thing in this time. Um, but in general, though, um, a reminder that you can normally um, in any park that has a campfire ban, you can bring a little propane fire ring and do that. Um, and it operates much like your barbecue at home. You can roast marshmallows and it gives you that same ambiance. And, um, yeah, it's a great way to do it as well. But you know, the, the big one here, I mean, I'm excited for the camping. Don't get me wrong, but the big one is really that the trails are open. I know there's tons of folks who love, you know, you think about even like Cypress provincial park, you've got the bait and Powell trail. You have the beginning of the house sound crest trail, all starting and stopping in some of those major BC parks as the, as the trail nodes and as the big areas where people start and stop. And that's the stuff that's reopening. So that's really exciting. And I think that people should take, yeah, take advantage of that. And, and um, it really does do wonders, as you mentioned, for like your mental health. Just get out oh, and, yeah. you know, get in the trees, breathe in some fresh air. Our province is one of the best places on the planet to do that at the best of times. Totally. But totally. right now we should all deem ourselves lucky to have this asset in our backyard and right. go ahead and use it. I think so. What what has it been like for you, for a guy like you who is work, uh, running a business in the, for outdoor recreation and doing like an outfitting out service for people who want to get outside. I mean, this has got to have been a pretty brutal downturn for you, I imagine. Yeah. You know what? It, it's definitely been really tough and I feel for my colleagues, um, in, uh, in all of the, um, kind of the busiest destination markets as well, because I know that, you know, there are huge outfitters, most of our fishing guiding operators, um, on the coast, most of our lodges, all that stuff is closed. And those, uh, those businesses both bring in, hundreds of millions of dollars from overseas for visitors to come visit British Columbia, but they also um, provide employment in, in small communities and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, for us, it's, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a bit of, it's been a bit of an eye opener, but it's also been, there's been some really kind of neat things that have come out of this. You know, we've watched our client base who all they want to do is go out and go skiing or, or go out and go rock climbing or go hiking. And everyone's kind of taken this on pretty seriously and, and, and toned down their activity. So if you used to be a mountaineer, maybe now you're just out, you know, scrambling around a little bit. And if you're normally just a hiker, people have kind of toned it down into some um, lower risk activities, walking trails, that sort of thing. So I think yeah. everyone's sort of taken their risk profile and ratcheted it down a notch. And we've seen a lot of newcomers, too. So I hope we don't lose those folks in terms of uh, creating a love of the outdoors because, you know, maybe you've been somebody who goes to the gym three days a week and now you walk the trails. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are turned on to 
just how beautiful it is out there and and maybe maybe just how nice it is to yeah get your head away from a computer and and step outside for a minute because it certainly does wonders for for every aspect of your health good advice sam thank you for coming on as always thanks mike